City University Television presents The American Theater Wing Seminars Working in the Theater This seminar Welcome to the American Theatre Wing's Working in the Theatre Seminars. I'm Sandra Gilman, Chairman of the Board of the Wing, and this is Doug Leeds, our President. We've been presenting these very special programs for 25 years with our partners, CUNY TV, and we've expanded them this year thanks to support from the Annenberg Foundation. These seminars play an important role in the Wing's efforts to provide educational programs for people interested in theater. We are now also broadcasting a new weekly radio show called Downstage Center on XM Satellite Radio. On these shows, we also bring conversations with theater artists both on stage and behind the scenes to listeners across America. To further support our educational efforts, the American Theater Wing each year provides grants and scholarships to New York theaters and theater students. All of our educational and media programs, including these seminars, are available free on demand from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. The Wing founded the Tony Awards 60 years ago, and we're continuing to present them with the League of American Theaters and Producers. We're fortunate enough to have three greatly admired female performers working on the stage today. We will hear about their individual experiences that brought them to this moment in their careers. We thank you for joining us, and we're very pleased to now introduce our moderator, reporter and critic, Pia Lindstrom. We are so very fortunate to have three of the most incredibly talented actresses with us today. And I am so happy to be able to introduce Kathleen Chalfant, who of course we know from Wit and from Angels in America and so many wonderful uh, productions. Brenda Blethen from London, one of the great actresses of the English stage and now the American stage. And Randy Graff, who has been with us for a long time here in, in uh, New York. Many things you've done. Angels in America, a Tony Award. And City of Angels. City of, City of Angels. Angels. That's Angels in America. City of, a lot of angels here. <laughs> Angel. So welcome all. I, I, I know how you get to Carnegie Hall. We've heard about that. Practice, practice, practice. I'd like to know how you got to Broadway. And I'd like to start with you, Kathleen, because you're from San Francisco. I am. So how did you get from San Francisco? to Broadway. The, uh, to, uh, I took the long way around, actually. I, I was born in San Francisco and grew up in Oakland and went to school in Palo Alto in, at Stanford. And then I got married right away. Huh. And we went to Europe, my husband and I. And I always meant, all the time, I always meant to be an actress, but I took a sort of sidestep when I was at Stanford and studied classical Greek. And I was on my way to graduate school, and then I met my husband, and my husband said, I said, you know, I don't really want to teach Greek to prep school kids. And he said, well, what, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I, I always thought I wanted to be an actress. And he said, why don't you do that? And I said, oh, oh what an idea. So I dropped out of graduate school. 
um, and, and began to study acting in San Francisco, and then we got married and lived in Spain and had a baby, and then lived in Italy, and I studied acting in Italian, which was great, with a wonderful <laughs> That is the long way. It is the long way. long way. Alessandro Fersen. And then we finally moved to New York, and um, I began... Uh, we, we lived in Woodstock for a little while, and our second child was born during a production of Major Barbara, in which I was playing Barbara. So you started a little <laughs> bit later than in your life. I did. I came to New York. I was 28 when I came to New York. Oh, I, came, I actually okay. interviewed with Wynne Handman mm -hmm. on my 28th birthday, which was January 14th. And, and Brenda, did you start very I'm young? I'm a late starter. Oh, you're a late starter yeah. too. You didn't I didn't go to drama school till I was uh, um, nearly 28. Huh. Yeah. And they I'd let you in. They let me in. <laughs> yeah, it's a mystery <laughs> to me too. <laughs> well, what were you doing before? You were I worked um, when I uh, left school. I went to commercial college, and I learned shorthand typing, bookkeeping, and all those sorts of things. I worked in all sorts of places: a bank in London, British Rail. Um, but I did a little bit of amateur dramatics, and people kept saying to me, do you know, you, I think you're good enough to be a professional, and I thought it was the most ridiculous, <laughs> absurd, irresponsible idea. Do <laughs> you know, to give up my good job and, and um, become an actress. But people said it quite often, and I thought, well, I wonder. And I was 27, I thought, I might spend the rest of my life wondering about this unless I go and check it out. So I applied to Guildford School of Acting, which was quite near to where I lived. And um, lo and behold, uh, they gave me a place. But I didn't tell my family because they'd have thought I was off my rocker. <laughs> so I'd taken leave of my senses. So I waited until I thought I hadn't made the right decision, and, um, and I was doing okay at drama school, and I told my mum and dad, and they were thrilled for me because I was happy. Um, uh, they just wanted me to be happy. They didn't mind what I did, as long as it was legal. <laughs> In fact, my mum said to me one day, Brenda, if you do your acting all day long, when do you earn your money? <laughs> I, I said, they pay me, Mum. She said, do they? <laughs> they got any more jobs? <laughs> <laughs> and then they got to see you at the National Theatre and the Royal Shakespeare Company and oh, all of those things. I mean, you did open. so many wonderful things. Yeah, they were over the moon. In fact, I was at the National Theatre in London when it opened. And um, so I was in all the, the uh, not all the early plays, because there was three theatres, mm -hmm. but I was actually in the Tamburlaine the Great. I only had one line, but I, <laughs> but you were but there. I was in it, yes. Did, mm. Randy, did you start very young, or did you? Well, if you ask my father, he said I've been performing since I've been three. <laughs> <laughs> but You're from Brooklyn. I'm from Brooklyn. So it wasn't so far for you to get so to Broadway. Far. You're the, the closest yeah. one to Broadway. I went. We, we. I grew up in Brooklyn, and then we moved to Staten Island when I was 15. And then when I graduated college, we moved into. Uh, uh, I moved into Manhattan. But I think it was always around my family. I think. I don't think I chose it. You know. I think it kind of chose me because there's always been music in my family. My grandmother sang. My Uncle Jerry, still at 86 years old, writes and plays piano beautifully, and, and my cousins are actors. So it was always kind of around. But um, I don't think I got serious about it until I was in college. But I have girlfriends from Brooklyn who I still keep in touch with 
who all, who all popped up during Fiddler. It was great. Fiddler oh, brought oh. everybody back. Oh, it was wonderful. I and, saw Fiddler. Oh, thank you. Wonderful thank that. you. But all, all the old girlfriends from Brooklyn showed up, and, and one friend said, well, you told me you wanted to be Carol Burnett when you were in the sixth <laughs> grade. And I, I don't remember any of this stuff, but I, I, uh, it was just always around. And in college, I you know, majored in speech and theater and minored in education because my parents wanted me to have something to fall back on. <laughs> yeah. And it was there that I met a gentleman named Milton Lyon, who passed away about eight years ago, but he really became a mentor for me. And, and taught me that when you sing, you have to act. I learned that very early in college. And, um, and Milton, when I graduated college, Mil Milton was directing a production of Pins and Needles, which is this musical about the Garment Workers Union, written by Harold Rome, at the old Roundabout Theater when it was on 23rd Street. Within, in the market. The, when it was the old movie theater <coughs> on 23rd Street. And I, I was living in the city, and I didn't have any representation or anything like that. And I just called Milton up, and I said, can I try out for your show? <laughs> you know? And he said, yes. And I auditioned, and my Uncle Jerry played my audition for me. And, um, and he hired me, and I got my agent at that point, who was coming to see one of his other clients in the show. So it all kind of took off from there. But it really was a connection that I made in, in college that helped me. Take so off. nobody discouraged any of you, really. Mm. It sounds like all of you were. No, it seemed, it seemed, my in my family, as in Brenda's, it seemed, and not like Randy's. It seemed not practical. That's right. Not yeah. a And then I found out the same thing afterward that my parents were all excited and happy that I'd done it. And, and I have to say that I had. I had then and still have, because we've now been married for 38 years, the unequivocal support mm. of my husband. Well, I guess that would have to be, wouldn't it? Yeah. Are you here married? And, and no, I'm not, no. but I've been with my partner for 30 years. I can't make up my mind about it. <laughs> <laughs> Take your time. If it's working, but if it's working don't. No, I mean, that, because that is a problem. Support, I have a friend yeah. of mine who's an actress, and I keep inviting her to parties. She can never come. I can never see her. She's always working. Eventually, you give up on friendship. Don't you have trouble with yeah. family and friends? Yeah. Keeping it's them difficult. going? Yeah. Well, especially when you're doing eight shows a week, there's it's difficult. no time to see anybody. Yeah. And you but can't if you've got real friends, you know, you, uh, my best friend in London, I don't think I've seen for about ten years. Well, that's <laughs> but if I, rang, if I saw her now, it was as if I saw her yesterday. Yeah. It's uh, yeah. For you, but maybe not for her. Oh, no. Because I'm it's the friend, the and so I always feel, gosh, I, I'm no, missing out on something here. But you really have to have that yeah. tunnel vision, I guess. And you can't have, it's interesting, you can't have people to dinner, which is an odd thing. My, we live in a, in a house, uh, we own a house, in a, it's a family house, and so Henry and I live on the top, and our cousin, Henry's cousin and his wife, live underneath us, and he's a painter and she's a writer. And Charlie and Michelle have people to dinner all the time. And I think, oh, I should do that, but you realize there, these are, there are odd things that happen to your life that you don't expect. Yeah. I sometimes envy that, you know, because we don't have time, because our work takes place when everyone else is sitting down yes. for a family meal yes. or out to the theater to enjoy themselves. Yeah. <laughs> We're working. And, and I sometimes envy that. 
um, being able to do it, but not all the time. <laughs> Sometimes I'm glad that, <laughs> you know, that, <laughs> that your life would. Yeah, be I prefer what I'm doing. Tell um, me a little bit about auditioning. You, you mentioned a rather pleasant experience when you auditioned, but isn't that very awkward and difficult to go to auditions? Yes. <laughs> Do you all like them? It's I mean, is this something you look forward to and you say, I get to... I'm not very good at them. I think I've, I, it's very seldom that you ever hear anyone say that they are good at them. There are some people who say they love to do them, but I think they're delusional. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was Tyne Daly said that she loves to, to go to auditions because it's an opportunity to act. I thought, well, that uh, sounds good. I can't... I was wondering, if, as we are speaking here of women in this profession, can we call you actresses? I know that sometimes you have to say actor now, We've all so been I don't calling know. ourselves I, actresses. I don't want to be politically incorrect here and call you actresses. If you're an actor, about that, you don't know. Okay, actresses. Matter. Good or bad I like the important part. Yeah. <laughs> so I wonder if, there's a, if any of you have experienced an expectation, as you are women, what you're supposed to be on stage when you arrive at an audition. Or would it be exactly the same for men? The reason I'm thinking of it is very often you, you think of women's roles. There's the, the good girl, the bad girl, you know, the tart, the matron, the society woman, the witch, the crazy woman in the attic. I don't know. There's a kind of group there. Do you feel that there's a pressure to be a certain type? I think what I've learned is that it's just best to be yourself, that you can't second guess what they're looking for. And to just present who you are, and you have no control over whether or not you're the right type or not. I read this book early on, Michael Shirtliff's How to Audition. Do you know this book? No, I think I it's still out there. He used to be a casting director. I don't yes, know if he's he doing it yeah. anymore. But he talked a lot about all the things as an actor that is just out of your control. Um, and I, I gave the, oh, I'm going off on a whole tangent here, but it's a cute story. I gave, I gave, my dad is a retired salesman, so he knows about selling. He knows about product and he knows about selling. And when I first got into the business, I, I said, Dad, you have to read this book, because this, this is a book about my business. And um, he read the book, and I had an audition one week, and I told him that, um, he said, so how'd you do? Did you get a call back? And I said, no, I didn't get a call back. And he said, well, I guess you had the wrong color suit on. I thought he got it. Yeah. He got it. So you, you, can't, you, you can't second guess them ever. You just have to be who you are and present who you are. And they either want that quality right. or they don't. That's just been my experience. Is that the same experience? I think, that's, I think it's true and it's the most difficult thing to convince yourself of. Yeah. Because it goes on and on and you keep saying, well, if I'd only, or maybe I could have. But it doesn't seem to be true if you do what you can do in the best possible way. Um, it's your best chance. Yeah. Right. And sometimes it, people, because I've been on both sides of the casting um, table, I was about to say couch. No, <laughs> we can talk about that one. Yeah. And sometimes <laughs> someone surprises you because they, are, they aren't anything like the person that you had in mind, but they're the best person who's come in. Hmm. An example of that, a wonderful example of that was in WIT, actually. Um, um, Paola Pizzi, who ended up um, playing the nurse, who was written as an Irish person. And Paola 
is an Italian person from Argentina. She's beautiful. She lives in my building. So beautiful <laughs> and about to have a baby. Yes. Oh, actually, Paula's going to have a baby. But um, I'd been cast and they asked me to be there for the casting for all the other parts. And we saw a whole bunch of people, all wonderful people, many of them Irish, mm -hmm. many of them who looked exactly like what you imagined the part to be. And Paula came in. And it happened that it was a day when you went to work with a relative and my niece, for some reason, d decided that she was going to come to work with me. So she came to work with me that day. And she was there. She was about 16. And so she watched the audition. And every single person in the room said, well, it has to be Paula. Huh. Mm -hmm. Couldn't be anybody else. Mm -hmm. And... So Paula became Susie, and, and, and it did an amazing thing. It changed the part. So Susie, the name of the character is, I think, Susie Monaghan, is always play, has been played, Audra McDonald played her in the, in the TV thing. So, so it made the part free in oh, some way. Yeah. It was, it was, uh, I hadn't thought about that for a long time, but that's a great example of what can happen in an audition, and you just go and do who you are. I remember reading Hume Cronin saying that he had gone to an audition and they said to him, you don't look like anybody. He always said the problem was he was so <laughs> plain. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I was thinking that maybe one has to, you know, do something what? to get attention. Yeah. Some people do do that. You don't. You don't. No. no, no you just, okay. I just turn up as me. Um, it's sometimes quite hard, I suppose, if the the casting person or the director hasn't got a clue who you are and doesn't know your work. I mean, I would never get any job on that, and usually I don't, if, if that is the case. But it, it's, um, I sometimes talk to students at my old drama school, and they get despondent if they haven't got an audition. But it's not always if you're, you're not talented enough to play the part, or you're not right. They might already have cast somebody the same height as you, the same color eyes as you, same color hair as you, same accent as you, who, you know, and they don't want two people <laughs> like that. It's not always that you, you, you're not capable and would not be good playing the part. It's, there are other things taken into consideration too. So. What's the best part of the rehearsal period? Rehearsal, mm -hmm. yeah. just rehearsal. Just rehearsal. Oh. Yeah. It's my favorite, and I and I and I. You know, when I tell my husband this, I say, "Honey, you know, I love you, but I just please don't take it personally. The rehearsal room is my favorite room in the world." <laughs> <laughs> when it's the right group of people and the right project, it just there's nothing like it. There's nothing like it. We had the most incredible rehearsal process for Fiddler. For Fiddler. Yeah, because they did all kinds of stuff to make us feel like a community, and we started out. And the first day of rehearsal, I thought, oh, no, I'm not into this at all. But we, had, we, <laughs> we, we did these massages where we would find a partner and massage, massage your partner, and then your partner would massage you. But it really just gave you a chance. And sometimes it made me a little self-conscious if I was with... It was your partner. Everybody. <laughs> oh, ended up going around the whole around company. around the whole company. And sometimes you're, I was a little intimidated if it was some gorgeous man <laughs> who was rubbing my body. I, I would be a little self-conscious about that. But you know what? Eventually I got into it. <laughs> Um, and that was just to make us feel relaxed mm -hmm. and comfortable around each other. And then we did these Jewish folk dancing. We'd start every morning with 
massage, vocal warm-up, and Jewish folk dancing. And it was, it was so wonderful, and it created such a bond and such a family and such a community within the company. And then from there, we went on to, you know, tackle the, the, the text. But I just love the creative process. I, I, that's, I live for that. I, I love that, and that's why I love rehearsal. Brenda, is that, what is the best part of rehearsal oh, for you? I agree. Rehearsing is just in discovering, you know, and finding working bits out and finding something new each day. It's, it's, it's wonderful. It's very edifying. Um, but just prior to the read-through on the first day, I am petrified. I, I should be in hospital. I am so scared. Because you always imagine they're going to find out any minute they've made a t dreadful yeah. mistake. Oh my God! Is it the I'm, same yes, with you? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. yes. I don't know. And do you know? And do you have the thing where everybody else is wonderful? Yeah, oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Why am I in this <laughs> play? First you know, read through. And is then the after mm -hmm. the read through, um, there's like a little bit of a lull while everybody chats to each other. But the director and the producers are huddled somewhere, <laughs> and they're thinking, oh, we've got to get on to central casting. Yeah, I'm right. thinking, we're going to get rid of her. What are we going to do with, with her? We've got to get rid of her. <laughs> Terrible paranoia. And it's the same before going on in a performance. Every single time, I'm petrified. Do you have a lot of stage fright? I'm petrified. Once I'm on, oh, I'm, really? I step on, I'm fine. But before going on, I, uh, it's awful. Is there anything that you do beforehand to try and relax yourself? Um, uh, j just before curtain up, this is going to sound silly, but <laughs> I don't even know. I'm not even going to say that. Yes, tell us, tell um, us, tell us. <laughs> well, I'm right in the center of the curtain on stage, and I offer myself like an offering to the audience, and I'm going to do my best, and I can't do any more than that. Right. So That's good. And, that's, and it's just... Um, just to center myself and to stop wasting energy, fretting. That's the only reason I do that. Yeah. What do you do with stage fright, Kathleen? I, it's odd. I don't... <clears throat> it's almost gone now. I, I had a long period of six or seven years when I thought I would have to stop mm -hmm. because it was so awful. It was, a, it was a kind of phobia, you know, and I could feel it. I would be fine. And it would start in the middle of rehearsal and then go on for a long time and it, it was awful. It's worse when it starts in rehearsal because it means you can't work because it's when the work happens and it would start, I could feel it, start at the bottom of my feet and mm. crawl up and stop about here and I could just barely talk <sighs> and I, um, and I really I didn't know what I was going to do and I went, I was seeing a therapist at the time and she had among her clients a lot of people people who were pilots and things people who flew and all and she and I was the only person in the theater that she'd ever had up to that time and I was explaining that it was a problem she said oh I understand this is a practical problem isn't it it gets in your way and she said you would be surprised how many pilots have fear of flying oh That's gosh it's not reassuring. Surprise and alarm. And so she said, "There." And so she said, "I have a, you know, obviously there are deep underlying causes, and perhaps we'll dig them up, or perhaps we won't. But obviously, so she said, it's quite a simple thing, but it's quite difficult to do. So you can't think about it. You can't give it 
brain room in a way and I always I do this because I always thought of it as this terror would begin to creep across your eyes as though they were creeping onto the screen and you have to push it away by any active thinking about anything working you know if you read the text don't think about it because terror is a little bit like a wound you know how you always pick in a way to sort of feel if you're alive and it's very dangerous it especially phobic terror like they just pull you down and so it's gone away and the only time now that I that I'm frightened is during the judging you know during the time <coughs> when the critics come oh. mm. because it seems um, un, I, it seems that there's so much hanging mm -hmm. on it is it fear of being a failure or fear of just getting it wrong it's fear of getting it's fear of it, it actually is fear of letting down the enterprise you know everybody's worked so hard yes. and, and you have to work the, the great secret is you have to work just as hard to do it badly as you do to do it well <laughs> nobody sets out to do it badly or to fail and there's all so much work and it all seems to hang on this one night and even if you say I don't want to know when he's out there you always wind up you know or you know after yeah. it's happened and so the whole period of the judging mm -hmm. is difficult. I find it a difficult time to work. Yeah, yeah. So I have to, and I have to do something it's like, like what Brenda did. Again, yes, it is an it? audition. It's an audition for the you to sing as well. Oh, that's it, the worst. When I, I, talking, yeah. ah, it's already hard enough. What? That's just the worst. What do you do when you have to go out yeah. and sing and your throat is closing up? I've had some really embarrassing <laughs> moments with singing and clamming up because you. You know, you, you get locked so you can't breathe as well, and then you get dry. And um, I have a voice, a voice teacher who I check in with from time to time. She said a great thing to me. She said, "Yes, you're going to get nervous, but just know that it's not going to get in your way." Uh -huh. And just having that little mantra inside my mind, saying, "It's not okay. I'm nervous, but it's not going to get in my way. It's not going to get in my way." And just remember to breathe. Mm -hmm. When I remember to breathe. <laughs> I can sing, and I and I um, and I don't get nervous singing when I'm in the run of a show. But if I have a concert or a benefit when it's just one of those one-shot deals where you're just shot out of a cannon, I get terribly nervous for those things, and my heart starts racing. And and I, as long as I remember to breathe and take a good breath before a phrase, I'm okay. But. Mm -hmm. It's, um, it's now what really about just hard. physically? I was reading uh, about some actors that drink throat coat and they, they, they're drinking all these things backstage and taking yeah. pills. Do you have some regimen? Uh, yeah, I have all kinds of... Do you of like to divulge some um, of these things? <laughs> um, one thing that I will tell you is that any of those eucalyptus things are terrible for you oh. because they just dry you out and if you have to sing, or not even singing, just speaking, speaking. anything, there's a little lozenge and it tastes awful. But it's the best thing for you. It's the the slippery elm. Oh, slippery know elm, I know. Slippery, slippery elm, elm the yes, and they just taste awful. Awful. You can get them cherry flavored or mandarin orange flavored. <laughs> they still taste like they still taste terrible. You get them in the health food store. Mm -hmm. 
Um, there's what? a big slippery elm. It's, slippery it's, elm? it's an herb and it's a natural lubricator. So it just and I and I have them. I keep them in the back during the show. While you're singing? If I'm and having you know. some vocal problems, I just kind of let I let it really? live like right <laughs> well, there. That's very dangerous. <laughs> and it just melts. Could just go bursting out suddenly. <laughs> Well, one night I choked in the middle of "Do You Love Me" and I couldn't. I couldn't sing. I couldn't sing it. I just was choking, so I had to kind of talk it. And our conductor Kevin thought that I had um, choked on a lozenge, and it was the tuna fish sandwich that I had at intermission. Oh, <laughs> that that's okay. a good, an, but you have to a eat. little known hazard: yes. tuna fish or eating, eating, eating anything, anything. choking, yeah, eating intermission. And um, in Night Mother, I have to eat a snowball right at the the curtain up at first thing in the play is mama eating a cake and a couple of times I've inhaled crumbs and it's, mm -hmm. and oh. my voice can right. like try to carry on right. <laughs> so terrible <coughs> and it all and it's a practical set so I, I went you can right go to and the get sink and water and stuff. Water. Yeah. yes <laughs> and do you all do things like body works and relaxation techniques and uh, m massages, or you, you don't? I should do, you think of all the things I've, that you I've should do. i about singers particularly who have to do a lot of, um, well, I don't know, relaxation of all of the muscles. Yeah, I, I do. Throat and back. And I, yeah, but you also have to do things to get your body up because you need your whole body when you sing, so I find push-ups are really good. Push-ups mm -hmm. before you go on stage? Mm -hmm. You're kidding. Ten of them. You're back wow. <laughs> Girl push-ups. I'm impressed. Yeah. Girl push-ups. Girl push-ups. <clears throat> what, you're doing that backstage in your costume? In, mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, that helps you not think about your throat, at least you think about your arms. You, do you have some ritual before you I, go out on stage? I don't, and I keep thinking I ought to. I, what, I, what I've discovered <laughs> is that it works best. It's some odd combination of complete relaxation and having every nerve ending in your body ready mm -hmm. so that if you do the first too well then nothing much is happening when you go out and if you do the second too well then you're just taken over by nervous energy it is it, when it's best it's complete relaxation and it's a it's a a form, uh, and the audience, it's why I said I only get stage fright or something like it during the judging, mm -hmm. because the audience always seems, it seems the purpose of it. Mm. The play doesn't really exist unless the audience is there to see it, and that's really true. And so it's, it's wonderful to go out to the audience because it's going to be finished. You'll mm -hmm. find out whether it's, you know, working or or not, but the judging is something different. The judging How is How important audition. is the concentration on the other actors? Does that not help sometimes to forget about your own Absolutely. stage, right? If you really, really, if, you're if, you, if you can absolutely. really concentrate. You listen. If so you, you can't be listen. so relaxed. Yeah. This is the, the balancing well, trick in there. Because if you get too relaxed, you're not concentrating. It's, it's active relaxation. It's something, it's not, it's, when you first begin, you always think, when you, when, when you begin acting, you always think that all that kind of terror that you feel is useful to you, that it's the energy, it's the engine that's, that's fueling the, the work somehow and that you need to have that. And I've discovered that it isn't useful. What is useful is, I don't, it sounds woo-woo too, it's, yeah. out, it's just being completely alive and what you say is very important because if you get lost, 
lost not the lines, but lost in the line of the play, it's, the best place to go is into your partner. Mm-hmm. And then the two of you can find the play again, mm-hmm. or the however many of you there are on the stage. Do you ever lose your place? Have you ever lo- lost your place? Speaking uh, of... Not really. No, you... No. No. Once I'm on stage, I'm not you frightened at all. Oh, okay. No. So you... I'm... I, you're I, in a very I just like to be there. The play you're in now, Night Mother, I mm. mean, that is a very uh, hard work because it's so difficult, uh, that part. Do you take I, that I, with I, you? Uh, when I leave? Yes. Or no, no, you can no, leave No, I'm, I'm the opposite of a method actor. Okay. <laughs> I, <laughs> I look at my characters totally objectively. It's her, it's not me. Uh-huh. Um, uh, and uh, I can talk about her till the cows come. Once that curtain comes down, I'm Brenda, lucky enough okay. to be working on Broadway, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm ready to party. <laughs> Is this but, um, the British education? <laughs> <laughs> Aren't you ready to eat? Aren't you ravenous? Uh, and, and uh, you know, yeah, have a beer or something. <laughs> no, that's her. That's not me. Huh. Um, I'm like going back to what you just said about talking to the other person on the stage. Somebody once asked me, if you're working in a studio uh, and not on stage, do you talk, like, rather like here, do you talk to the camera? or to the audience, who do you perform to? You perform to the person you're playing with, who, you're, who you want to hear. What you, do you know what I mean? Yes. If this was a, a drama, a play, you talk to the other person and they'll get it. If, but if, if you if talk to the, the other person and your head is in the wrong place, we can't hear, so you must have some... <laughs> Uh, yeah, but the intent is still to the, the other actor. The There's another technique to embrace right. uh, uh, that, but the intent has to be to who you directed to whom you are talking. Right. Of course, the skills needed today are a little bit different. I was thinking everyone is mic'd on stage now, practically, so you don't need to have that vocal projection to the balcony, do you? In never. some of these plays, I've, I've never, never been, been mic'd. mic'd. You've never been mic'd. No, aren't you mic'd? Well, but there's an orchestra. They yeah. they have oh, so, to. But, in, yeah. so, but I've seen straight plays where they are too. They've never like, been mine. Never been. Okay, good. So no. you're doing it the old-fashioned way. You've got to only, speak up. only in the park. <laughs> in the park to, to talk <laughs> over the airplanes. And, but no, because not. it's becoming, you know, quite obvious that many people, particularly if they're screen actors who come in and haven't had that training. You know, that the, I the don't think training. I would like it. No. I don't like that at all. It's a, I didn't, it, because it's a mediation mm-hmm. somehow. Well, it has a slightly tinny sound. It has that slightly different sound. I, do, I wonder how different it would be if you were a mic. If one spoke naturally on stage um, in a big theatre, um, there's something to be said. If you, if you can't see what's happening properly, you, you can't hear as well mm-hmm. either. And um, on a stage, you naturally use your body in yeah. such a way so that it, it um, invites everybody in, not in a false way, mm-hmm. but there is just a way of doing it that embraces everybody. I think if it was more naturalistic, you'd lose that as well. Because you have to fill, yes. fill the space. It depends on the size of the theatre. For instance, the play I'm doing now, yes. 
was originally done in what's called the Little Theater at the Kennedy ten Center. By but ten. it's five by ten. Five only by ten. ten. Only <laughs> five. <laughs> My plays is five by three ten. hours long. But <laughs> five. Five but by ten. We started doing it in the yeah in the Terrace Theater at the Kennedy Center, which everyone says is the Little Theater because it doesn't have five thousand seats. It had six or eight hundred seats, and it's a deep, long, deep theater. And now we're doing it in the tiny little, uh, the smallest mm -hmm. theater at the Manhattan Theater Club, which seats 170 oh. people. And it, we were doing it a full-on proscenium there, and now it's, the, it's uh, the stadium seating, you know, people on, on three sides. And it's very different, and so you had to make it it had to reach to the back of the Terrace Theater there, and here it has to be appropriate to this stage, which is about the size of this <laughs> stage, and the whole theater, it's about this, the size of this uh, room, you know, back to where the last people are sitting So you here. play it smaller? You don't or consciously do, do it, but you... But it, I, you, I think what Brenda said is true. You, your body, you, you, you. It's like it's Alice in Wonderland. You, you shrink or expand <laughs> to, to, to fill to the, fill the space. space. And you should be able to play any scene anywhere in a in an elevator, or on a, you know if if the heart of the scene is right and if it's truthful, you can play it anywhere. Who says it has to be in a living room? You know, it could be in a deep end of a swimming pool. But if the heart and the truth of it is the same, uh, the intent is the same, so it, it could be, you could, should be able to play it anywhere. You yeah. should be able to stand up to close scrutiny wherever it is played. Let's talk a little bit about uh, training. Um, you studied with Sandy Meisner, is that? No, I studied with Wynne Handman, which was yeah, kind of like studying with Sandy okay. Meisner. Wynne was, Wynne was his, 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 I guess, his disciple, okay, disciple so in a way, though they were almost, of they were almost uh, contemporaries. The mm -hmm. wonderful thing about Sandy Meisner and about Wynne's training was that it was very practical. So he said, whatever works. He didn't necessarily want to know what it was that you were doing, but if it worked, that was fine. And if you if you fooled him by not doing anything but just playing pretend, that was okay too. And there was a wonderful story that somebody told, and maybe Wynne probably told the story about Sandy Meisner, who a student went and said, now Mr. Meisner, I know you're really supposed to cry, but you know what happens if you can't actually cry? And he said, well, you turn your back and shake your shoulders. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah. Very good. I do that. <laughs> <laughs> because the audience yeah, hasn't, no. the audience hasn't come to see you do it badly. The audience has come to have the story told. Mm -hmm. Yes. And you have to use whatever, whatever you can bring to telling the story to well, do I it. Well, I guess the art is making the audience cry, not having Absolutely. the actor cry. Yes. <laughs> I mean, Usually better not to cry. <laughs> yes, I mean, that would yeah. be the translating it. Yeah. But did you find it useful to you? Because there are some people who say, like I read that uh, <coughs> David Mamet said most acting teachers are frauds. I found Wynne's training invaluable. Ah. And, I've, and I keep running into, I'm actually in the play now, David Rashi's in the play, and David and I were in Wynne's class together. They're also, he was a wonderful, wonderful teacher because he had a wonderful eye um, so that he, he, he could tell when it was being done well or badly and he also had 
great taste. So it was, I, I've been very lucky, and the man I studied with in Italy, Alessandro Fersen, had the same mm -hmm. gifts, and they both came out of the, the kind of Ur method, which is out of Stanislavski, and Stanislavski came from, came from as a corrective to, but not an obliteration of, uh, classical theater techniques. So it didn't mean that you were, it, it, it didn't, it wasn't naturalism. It was true, which is different from naturalism, I think. Brenda, your training would have been classical, perhaps. Um, I didn't do much Shakespeare, for right. sure. I'm one of those people who is a little bit scared of it. Um, I, I have done Shakespeare at the National Theatre mm -hmm. and the BBC. In fact, my <laughs> the first Shakespeare I did at the BBC, I played Cordelia in mm -hmm. King Lear, um, directed by Jonathan Miller. And um, it was a, I, I enjoyed every minute of it because I thought I was learning something. But then I got very, very nervous when it was time to be transmitted. And <laughs> the day after, I was just so embarrassed for <laughs> expecting people to hate it. And I was just walking across um, Waterloo Bridge and I could see coming in the other direction a critic. <laughs> and I thought, oh no, what if he seen last night? Anyway, he bounded across the street and he said to me, Miss Blethyn, oh, I saw King Lear last night. I thought you were wonderful. I said, oh, oh, thank you, thank you. And I was so proud. He says, yes, you played it exactly as I thought it should be played, like a chip off the old block. I said, oh, this is wonderful. And then he said, technically, you've got some way to go. <laughs> no, what does that, what does that mean? I loved it, but... So I was totally <laughs> deflated. <laughs> what does that mean? I don't, no, I I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. It doesn't mean anything. The, the training you had, though, was in... in at, at, you mentioned the school the, the before. The Guildford School of and Acting, yes. And did they yes. do Stanislavski method, or did they do no, some... They did no, another. No, it's, um, it's It's much better now, and I think they probably do now. But then it was in its early stages, and, and they concentrated mostly on dance, actually. It's the best, um, I think, probably in Europe, uh, musical theatre ah, school ah. Um, there is. But I was on the acting course, and I didn't do the full term, as it happens. I was off I was the oldest one there, and uh, sometimes um, I was asked to take a little class or two, and I thought, well, I'm not learning anything here doing this, because most of the other students were 18, 19, 20. And I was offered a job um, with the Bubble Theatre Company, and that's uh, um, a company that tours the London boroughs in a big tent. Hmm. And, um, and they would generally go to boroughs that didn't have theatre. And s some of them did, and some were wealthy boroughs, and some were not. And depending on where we went, uh, reflected, was reflected in the ticket price. And we did three um, plays, an improvised play called The London Pub Show, um, Under Milkwood, hmm. and... Um, uh, Jack the Ripper musical, believe <laughs> 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 it or not. But, um, and, and I did that for six months and I learned more there. But ah. from doing that, 
Um, I then went to the National Theatre where I had, I would say, most of my training. Um, and and, and I, for you, you found it useful, that all the, the training that they gave you at the National? Uh, well, it, it wasn't, it was I, just working. There, there are people, yes, I was I the first one to come up through the, the ranks at the National Theatre. people who say that you can't theater. teach this and that it's, you know, you either know how to do it or you don't. What was your experience? Mm. Did you find teachers? I, I've had two really wonderful teachers. I, I actually. My first teacher, I think, shared a studio with Wynne Handman. His name was Richard Edelman. I don't know. Yeah. Who. And it was all um, Meisner technique. And, yeah. um, and, uh, and then uh, another teacher who's still teaching at a studio in Carnegie Hall. His name is Freddie Caraman. Oh, Fre well, Freddie used to teach with Wynne. With Wynne. So yeah. it's all, all from the it's same school. It's all the same. And Freddie Caraman, in my mind, is, is um, I never studied with Wynne, but I've heard great things about him. But Freddie is just, I think he, he, he's an amazing teacher. And, and he, I always thought that I was a pretty good listener on stage, and I didn't really learn what listening was about until I worked with um, Fred Caraman. But I have a question for, for you ladies. Um, you're doing a very emotional play right now, and, and, and I've seen you do great emotional work before. Don't you find having to get it up and go to those places eight times a week is um, exhausting, and, and on those, nights where you just don't want to go there, <laughs> which, yes, yes, what happens to you? People, I mean, that you do it, happened. it hasn't yet. No. not yet. Um, <clears throat> it's, it takes as much uh, uh, to play that part as any part to get it right for me. Um, uh, it's wonderful to hear people laugh, so it's, it's, it's uplifting to be playing in a comedy, but it, to be as honest doing that, to get that right takes as much concentration as, as doing that, I find. Mm -hmm. I don't know um, about For Kathleen. people who don't know, uh, Night Mother is about uh, suicide. Yes. Um, it's a mother and a daughter, and at the start of the play, um, the daughter announces to her mother that tonight she's going to kill herself. Um, whether she does or not, you have to come see yes, it. Yeah. <laughs> but the, the, the mother has to find ways of dealing with this news. Um, and there are some very emotional scenes in it. But um, once the play's over, I, I, she's there. I've left her behind. I'm, I'm but do you, do you ever, um, how long have you been running now? <coughs> Um, we've been playing for about six, seven weeks. Okay. So yes. I'm just wondering if you'll get to the point that <laughs> I've gotten to you with, Fiddler, like with gotten Fiddler, where it's, it's, it's close to a year now. <clears throat> Excuse me. When you talked about turning your back to the audience yeah. and crying, I started to do that because <laughs> I, <clears throat> it, I've just gotten to the point where, oh my God, I don't want to go there right now. Um, <clears throat> But what and is it's different is, uh, uh, from what you're doing now to what you were doing when it first opened? Um, I wasn't as tired, I think. I oh. think just after, after doing a three-hour show eight times a week for almost a year, I've just kind of hit a bit of a wall. Not every performance, but a couple, I, maybe twice a week or something like that. It's been I feeling that way. I think that's that a way. real issue because you are expending vast amounts of Phys real physical yeah. energy uh, uh, as well as emotional energy and I think you do get tired I think there is a reason the first time I was ever in a play long enough to take a vacation <coughs> was Angels in America yeah. 
And it never occurred to me to take a vacation. And then I realized that it actually was a good thing if I were planning to stay, to mm -hmm. take whatever, I think it was two weeks or something, because I didn't take it when you could take a week. Oh, I that's great. So I took two weeks. And <coughs> I think you really do need to... And, and there is a time when you should stop in a long run, that when you've done it long enough, um, because you don't have anything more to give to it then. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's difficult to do, because it's difficult to give up the part. Um, so then the technique of keeping things fresh, I've heard actors say that, I never quite knew what it meant, but well, you do. I mean, a year, do that? A year is quite a long time to do a play eight times a week. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's a very long time to do a musical eight times a week in which you both have to sing and dance because you're, you're, the physical demands are enormous. I, did, I was in Angels in America off and on from the beginning of its uh, development off and on for six years, oh. from the first reading at the New York Theatre Workshop in 1988 until I left it on Broadway in 1994, but it wasn't continuous until we came to Broadway. And so we came to Broadway, I think 1993, and we did Millennium, and then rehearsed Perestroika, and then we did so for a while we were doing both plays. So there was always something new going on. And in and WID, I did off and on for three years, five different incarnations another of Another one of a person But a died. year, there was a year... Uh, you know, a whole one year that was continuous from the continuous time we came to New York, but and then, oh, and then I went to right to Los Angeles and then to London. But and by the time the play closed in London, I was ready to stop playing the play. And you, there are, you know, the way to do it to keep it fresh is just to start every day. You know, you just start as though you've never done it before, but there are, it, it, there are limits to how long you can do that. I will be ready for a holiday. <laughs> it's a limited After. run. But it's only, the play is an hour and a half only, so... Mm. Um, yeah. I, I'm, it's like telling a joke. You, could, you know, the audience haven't seen the play before, mm -hmm. and if you tell a joke, you, you tell it with as much enthusiasm to the person who hasn't heard it before. Mm. You want to get the punchline Right, so it, it, it has to be new the first time, at, you know, as you know. You know each Speaking time. of audiences, do you follow the audience or do you try to lead the audience? Uh, I mean, are you think listening? I do either. Well, you have to um, r respond appropriately if there's a big uh, belt they of laugh, laughter. If they yeah. laugh suddenly. You just like. If, um, to ride it, there's just a way that we just know how to do it. It's um, you can't necessarily be taught that. That's just something that comes with experience. So you um, are listening. You are you aware. Of it, yes. Are you aware of the audience? You hear every single thing that happens in the audience, and this is a thing I think that audiences don't understand. Every what you can be completely involved in the play and are, and you know every single piece of cellophane 
practice yeah. that has been open. Cellophane should actually be banned Bad. from the theater. <laughs> the rate, the <laughs> Just, it shouldn't be. People should unwrap anything they might need to eat or look at or anything at home and have it in a small velvet bag. Oh, that's and a good idea. Yeah. And after you've heard the, the, the sweet unwrapping, crinkle, 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 and they do it real slowly. <laughs> and then and once it stops, you're just waiting for, for You just know about five seconds later, you're going to hear. <laughs> and you can hear that? Oh, that's terrible. You hear everything? Or you think it's over. You think it's over. But then people have the sweet in one hand and the cellophane in the other. Yes. yes. And what do you do with the cellophane? You move it. <laughs> it's very... That's amazing that you are so tuned to the sound. Well, Linda Eamon said this once, and it's absolutely true, that a theater is an oral... Um, uh, an oral space. It's meant for things to be heard. So it goes both ways. We can hear on the stage as clearly as people in the audience can hear. And you are aware, you're aware of a kind of general sense of the audience. If people are restive, mm -hmm. um, uh, you can tell when they're listening. When you can people really are listening, feel when they're they're listening. my mom, yeah. when she came to see me at <laughs> the <laughs> national, whenever I came on, I heard that's her. That's my <gasps> girl. Oh, <laughs> no. That one. Oh. That one talking now. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, oh. and the first time my daughter ever saw me in a play, she was two or something and it was at the, she was Henry brought her and she was standing at the back of the theater and I came on and she said mom oh. <laughs> and my mom used to wear whites she doesn't do it anymore but she would wear white sleeves and in the curtain call she would yeah. like this mom <laughs> she doesn't do that anymore <laughs> but it is a form of I mean it's a form of the purpose of it is communication and so it would be mad to say that you weren't aware of the other person in the conversation because that's what it is. We're, you're trying to tell the story, so y y it's a it's a tricky thing because you 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 also can't always tell in the same way you can in a conversation. You can't always tell whether somebody's getting it or not because some groups of people feel comfortable and laugh and laugh and laugh, and other groups of people smile fiercely. Yeah, but you, you can't, can't hear, hear, it. hear it. And then they'll be on their feet at the yes, end. Yes, and the, the yeah. audience and that surprised. you think, yeah. You have the audience. It's, uh, it's I think people in the audience, we don't realize you're listening to us. At least I did, until you well, said we, it this way. I know you hear yeah. people's cell phones going off, but I, I didn't think that you were... I mean, you're not consciously trying to but hear. But when it's I'm just, in the audience, I saw hear. 12 Angry Men uh, last night, and the audience was so silent. But then they would laugh at odd places. Yeah. But you, and that's wonderful, because you feel, you feel the whole audience there. And it's great when people laugh yeah. at odd places, because laughter really means understanding. Oh. Usually, so it isn't not. It's not that people just laugh at jokes, no. and people. And it's great when people go, oh, yes, hear that yes, when they go, oh. yes. I remember um, when I was playing benefactors, Michael Frayn's play in London. I had a line that uh, uh, I said to another character on the stage. Oh, um, I've put a chicken in the oven for your dinner, and somebody went, oh. <laughs> And that you heard sheets going up. Oh, how funny. <laughs> oh, no. So she obviously left the sheets again in the oven. 
<laughs> oh, that's very funny. <laughs> so you hear them weeping sometimes? Yes, I mean, yeah. you've done these plays. Yes, lots of weeping, lots of weeping. You hear weeping, you hear, you hear everything. You hear people coughing. You hear, that's what someone, someone said, oh, it was Penny. I'm in the play now with Penny Fuller. Penny has all wonderful, wonderful stories to tell. And she said, and she remembers them. It remembers things that people have told her, which is a wonderful thing, too. So she said that Ralph Richardson was once asked um, why it was important to do it well. And he said, um, to stop people coughing. <laughs> That's a very interesting that people don't cough when they're listening. Mm -mm. Certainly have noticed that. No. So that must be a bad sign when you start to hear everybody coughing. coughing. And you know, it's not going well. What's the worst thing that's happened? Let's talk about the disasters. Has some have you reached <laughs> for the gun and it wasn't there, or the, you know, or the, the curtain came down, or the missing prop? Um, when I was doing Les Miserables, I, I was doing my death scene, at, uh, and um, Colm Wilkinson is supposed to come on stage and lift me up off the floor and carry me into my deathbed, and he never came. <laughs> this is a famous story. I tell it, Colm tells it, Terry Mann tells it. But I was, was singing he? at the end. He was talking to his dresser. He just forgot, and I was, I was at the edge of the stage, and it's a duet, and he never... Oh, came out. So I would me. sing my bit, and then yeah. Colm was supposed to come in and sing. So I would sing, and then I would just let the music go and pretend, you know, I was delirious <laughs> then anyway because I was dying, so I was just sort of oh. pretending that I heard the voice. And, and the conductor and I were just kind of looking at each other, and it was time for me to die, and he still hadn't come out on stage. So I dragged my dying body into my deathbed and finally got into bed, and then I heard this, oh, shh. <laughs> over the loudspeaker Aww. and he realized he was late they cut him off as he <laughs> and he finally he finally came on stage and as and, and he embraced me and he was singing and he was embracing me he was saying oh Fantine your time is running out I'm so sorry I'm so sorry in my ear and that was a, that was yeah, that's bad. That felt like a week. <laughs> that happened to me too. <laughs> when to I was supposed to be, in the, I was in the Passion at the National, in the Cottesloe at the National, and Robert Stevens and myself. Who, he was playing Pontius Pilate, and I was Mrs. Pontius Pilate. <laughs> <laughs> and we had to make this grand entrance on a gantry, looking down onto the audience. It was a promenade. Uh, performance and he had this speech first as says low pilot am I proved, proved prince of great pride blah, 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 blah. and then I had a speech um, I am Dame Precious Perkler a princess is the prize but he wasn't there so I thought oh, well I'll do his speech so I said low um, pilot lives here <laughs> proof print and then I did my speech and then I did the rest of his bit and he still wasn't there but then the scene continued um, where we're supposed to start kissing and I turned, I turned to the band leader behind me John Tams I said what what shall I do <laughs> He said, improvise. So I thought, there's only one thing to do. I turned to the audience. I said, I'm terribly sorry. I'm afraid my pilot's gone out. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's at great. Which, at which point, oh, that's great. At which point, Robert came on. He'd got tangled on a door handle. He had this big cape on. And he couldn't free himself. Oh, no. And I said, oh, 
shall we start again? <laughs> they said, oh, yes, yes. please. So that was all right, but terribly oh. embarrassing. Oh, gosh. Oh, oh, gosh. That was a great line, though. <laughs> <laughs> very, very good. I didn't even know it was funny when I started the sentence. <laughs> <clears throat> and another time in the same show, I had to go and find Malchus, who'd had his ear chopped off. Um, the, the soldiers had captured Jesus. And, in the Garden um, of Gethsemane, in, yeah. that, that always baffling picture where <laughs> yeah, there's... And I couldn't find him because was, there was a thousand people in this, uh, and it was a promenade, and I was going through the crowd. I simply couldn't find him. And so I went back to the soldiers. I said, well, I can't find him, but if he had been here, he'd have said <laughs> this. And I did his part. <laughs> and then I'd have <laughs> said... <laughs> but the lines were almost identical. So it was... Uh, <laughs> Anyway, yeah. this was embarrassing. Live theater. <laughs> Audiences love that, though. Yes, of course, we love the stories, too. Did that it, just it, happened. Do you have a story? Well, that just, this story just happened a week ago. No. Yeah. In, where there are these five one-act plays of Tennessee Williams, and in one of them, um, I am a, a wife with a philandering husband, and this very handsome young man comes much younger man, uh, Robbie Sella actually, comes to try to t take me away because he's fallen in love with me. And in the play, I don't go with him. And the audience, about half the audience always says, well, why didn't you go? Why didn't you go? <laughs> but I stay. Um, <clears throat> but the other night, um, at the m moment when he says, when the young man says, well, I won't leave unless you go with me. At that moment, my husband, David Rashi, is supposed to be talking to the elevator boy in the hall. So Robbie said, I won't go. And there was a great silence. And I was at the door. It was one of those moments where I was at the doorknob. And if I had had any gumption, whatsoever. I'd have said, well, hell, let's go. And, but I didn't do that. So I listened, and, and it's a tiny little theater. David couldn't have been very far away. I didn't know where he was. So I did, I said, oh, but, but you have to go, but you have to go. Josie will be here any minute now. And still no David. Oh, no. I'm sure he's coming. I'm sure he's coming. <laughs> Did and you say by that, that very loudly? Time, <laughs> by that time, I was an inch away from leaving with oh, the young man. I, next time, I'm leaving time. with the young man. <laughs> now, we love, of course, we love all those stories because that so is funny. the difference. And you, know, and you don't believe it's going to happen when it's happening. You think, this can't be happening. This isn't really true. <laughs> and then it's funny. Now, I've also heard about actors' nightmares. I've read that uh, Vanessa Redgrave said she repeatedly had this nightmare that she was coming out in a play and she didn't know what the play was. It was another play. Oh, She's in another, it's in, they're saying other lines, that she, and she said it, it's like a recurrent nightmare. Yeah. It is. Do you all have recurrent nightmares? Yes, yeah, quite often. One. Same that one? one? Yes. Yeah. No, you have Or you turn up at the wrong theater. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. It's and you possible. can't find, and you aren't, and quite often you're naked. Which is worse. <laughs> I'm quite often naked. <laughs> yeah. At the wrong theater as At well. At the wrong theater. That's because you were naked. No, I know. Wit. I have to give it <laughs> so up. Maybe so maybe it's coming back. Yes, to you. right. I can't imagine what I was thinking of. So you're, you haven't, you don't have the costume, and you know. I, my version of it is, I know there's a play going on, and I should know what's going on. Somehow I've missed all the rehearsals. 
<laughs> but it's happening, and there must be a script somewhere. And I can find neither my costume nor my script, and it just goes oh, on and on. Is that just you have awful. a nightmare? What is your it's recurrent nightmare? It's hysterical. It started when I was doing Les Miserables, and, I, and it's still going on. And I'm always dressed in my Fontaine costume with the wig, no matter how old I am. I'm still in the same costume <clears throat> and the same wig. And they've thrown me into the role in some production somewhere, and I don't know what you know any of the words are or what the music is, oh. but I just find it so interesting that I'm always the same character at 30, at 40, at almost 50. I'm always, I'm always the same character. And I guess it's because it was that show and that part that really, th that, that was my first big break in And in how New old York. were you when you did that? 31. Oh, okay. So I just thought maybe you were much younger, but... So, um, okay. but do you find you have these anxiety dreams when you're having um, work anxiety, when you haven't worked? or it, For me, it's usually centered around work anxiety, oh, so work yeah, anxiety, not whether I'm not working or I am working, but it, it's not that's, a personal... That's another subject now. How do you keep finding work? Actually, men have uh, this problem as well, but I mean women also as we get older, it's harder to find jobs, well, isn't it? I've, I'll be 60 in January, and I never, I never you, thought I would ever be 60, but, um, but I didn't start working continuously, really, until I was 38. And so, for me, it's been better as I've gotten old. I keep expecting it to stop, at it, and it may stop. Five by ten is quite likely to be my last job. No, but I, but I, I've, I think what happens is you begin to work um, continuously for a long period of time, and then you don't. Yes. And it depends what when part you of your life... It. Well, that it, maybe you didn't start as the ingenue. I would never, and would never even so when maybe I was the ingenue. So maybe that's helpful if you don't start that way. I'm now about as old as people have always thought I was. <laughs> Grown <laughs> into yourself or something. <laughs> so finally, old enough to play whatever it is I'm supposed to be playing. Now, you do so many film roles. You, you have a big film career as well as a yeah, stage I career. But I came into the business simply to work in theater. I didn't have any dreams. I'm not very ambitious. I'm, in fact, I'm not ambitious at all. Hmm. I've never sort of yearned to do anything that I haven't got to do. Um, but I came into the business to work in theatre. Um, I didn't think I'd ever be on television or certainly wouldn't make films. My dad used to take me to the cinema once a week when I was a little girl and the people I saw were from Mars, you know, it was, they were from another planet. Um, so, I mean, that was just these wonderful people, not anywhere I was ever going to be. Um, but then when I eventually did do um, television, and then when I got to play Secrets and Lies, yes. um, my agent says, this is the best job you've ever been offered. I said, oh, this is fabulous. Um, let me read the script. He said, oh, Brenda, come in. Where have you been? There is no script. There never is a script. I said, there's no script? What do you mean? What, what, why does he want me? And, um, and that's where I learned uh, most. That working from that has informed, not, not Secrets and Eyes, actually. I did one in 1980 called Grown Ups. Um, that informed everything else I've ever done because of the, um, of the way he works and uh, the way you build up the character from infancy. Mike Lee. Oh, Mike I'm Lee. Sorry. Sorry, Mike um, Lee. 
and it's just a, a remarkable way of working. So I don't approach any job now without doing some uh, Mike Lee work on it, i.e. how does the character feel at the top of page one? Mm -hmm. You know, did she have a good night's sleep before page one? Mm -hmm. You know, and where the character did. It doesn't necessarily um, show itself um, in the production or whatever it is I'm doing, but it informs me of how to, to um, find my way through. In prior circumstance, is yes. that what it's called? Yes. A lot of it is contained, <laughs> of course, in the script. It gives you lots of clues, but um, not all. And, um, and it's important for me to think a lot about no, that. No, I didn't before. think film actors used that at all. Oh, well, you have guys. to even more. Really? In, yeah. even, even when it's not... Yeah. Mike, I mean, in Mike Lee's yeah. films, you develop the script yeah. together, together, but you're given, particularly if you don't have a big part in a movie, mm. if you have a small part in a movie, you have to make it all up because yeah. the only thing yeah. that exists is that scene and it needs to seem, you need to imply the whole the life, life yes. of the right. person before and the person afterward and also give the illusion of having a relationship with whoever it is you're talking yeah. to whom you probably met ten minutes ago and who might not actually be there when you shoot. When you shoot. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> it's All of that makes sense for the theater, I can understand that clearer. Clearer, but in the, in it, film and in television, in a way, because the writing isn't yeah. as rich, in theater, you, you sort of have to bring more, more to it, more of somebody, so, right. you know, yourself or or yeah. you know whoever this person is meant to be. But it's for a different, it's a, it's for a, such a, it's a tiny concentrated yeah. moment. And in theater, of course, you have the luxury of rehearsal and playing the part chronologically. On film. You get barely any rehearsal, especially if you've got playing a small part. You don't get any, and so you've got to go away and find something for yourself. Hmm. And on television, if you do, I just did a series for. I was kept recurring on this television Talking series for three head. years. Um, um, and what's interesting about the way television works in series television works in the United States is that the writers and the actors stay with the show but the directors change so the directors job in so that in a way the actors have the lore of continuing characters in them in themselves because the people who come in to you know do the episode don't know these characters so they, they know the, the story yeah. so you bring all the history w with you it's a, it's have you found this to be true? I've done so, so little film. I've done mm -hmm. one <coughs> film, it was terrible. <laughs> but in um, the theater, I've do you done need several to do of those. <laughs> <laughs> in the theater, do you have to do that work on how you felt before you arrive yeah, on the scene? It depends on the, on the character and how much is in the script and how much is not in the script. But I sometimes do a bio. Do you do bios sometimes at all? I, I write mm -hmm. histories yeah. out, I re retain things That's better if thing, I yeah. write it out. Um, but I wanted to ask, because uh, I've never had a big desire to do film, and, and I think it's because, I don't think, uh, for me, there's not much of a creative process, because there's no real rehearsal there. 
and I guess I wanted to ask you where, when you're working on films, where does the creative process come in for you if there's not, well, it's different, I guess, with a Mike Lee film, but oh, completely but, um, different, yeah. Is it rewarding for you in a different way than it is when you're working in the theater? Oh, it's so hard to, um, to describe because it's so out of, um, it's not chronological. You have to do a lot of work on your own beforehand. Um, if the director uh, feels so disposed to talk to you about it, um, I think they're pretty careful in casting, usually, um, and, and think you can probably come up with the goods, but th that's obviously not enough. Um, and the last few films um, I've done, um, on the day of shooting the scene, you get to talk about it and, and talk about what's needed and, and where the character is. But it's always the actor who's totally on top of that, and if the writer is around. Um, but they're generally shoved to the background, which I think is such a shame, because it's so much easier to go straight to the horse's mouth mm. and find out exactly the intention mm -hmm. of... Um, it's not how you say something, it's why you say something. And mm. uh, that's the most Im important thing. So I think the actor is pretty much pretty much has to do the, the great deal of the work on their so own. So the director is more important than the theatre. Do you find that to be oh, true? Kathleen, yeah. your director is, is important. In the theatre. In the theatre. Yeah. The director is the eye that you have to trust. You have to have somebody in the place of the audience. And, I mean, more than that, the idea of the whole. But it's like being a conductor, because you can't, you can't direct the play from inside. And you can't... The great trick is you can't make the other person that you're acting with do what you think they're supposed to be doing. Mm. And you can't respond as though they were doing what, <laughs> what you think they were supposed to be doing. It's very, it's, it takes such a long time to understand that you can't play both parts. Are you directing and so, yourself? No, I've, Anybody I've here interested in never directing? Direct, I know no. so many good directors I'd be interested. interested in theater. <laughs> theater yes. directing. Yeah. yeah. Um, and maybe that's... Um, maybe something I mm -hmm. might do but it's not I mean, it's not a craving to do it mm -hmm. but um, I might consider it there are very few women directors aren't there there are a few but not in the theatre yeah in the theatre no. don't you find you work mainly with men writers and men directors there are many more women writing for the theatre now in America but there the, it, it it depends on what level. It's true when it's when there's lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of money involved. Somehow it almost always ends up in in men's hands. So that, but you know more about this on Broadway. There are there women directing on Broadway, Randy? Um, Susan Stroman. We can name Susan. yes, Susan yeah, Stroman and um, um, Julie Taymor, yeah. who's but now Julie's doing film yeah. now. She's just disappeared <laughs> into film. So. Mm. Not many. Mm -mm. Susan Shulman is doing Little Women now, but um, so why is that? What, why? What? Why is that? Women have gone into so many other professions, I think and so that there's a strong, there's a you know, there's always a, there's a strong bias toward men, and there's a strong, oddly, a strong bias toward men um, in the creative part of the art, in the, in the, you know, uh, for writers. People, 
the, pe the people who have the money, for the most part, and this is in the commercial theater, it's not so true. It's much less true in the not-for-profit theater. In the not-for-profit theater, there are women in important positions mm -hmm. all over the country, both as artistic directors and as writers and as directors. But in the commercial theater, it's just, it's still a um, man's world uh, in great part. And now, a lot of the commercial theater is controlled by enormous corporations, not even by uh, people who are in the, in the theater. Wow. And it's, you know, and there's a strong bias toward me. Is that true in uh, England as well? Or yeah, I suppose it is. Um, I mean, I, I don't know uh, uh, where the money comes from. No, but you have not worked for many women directors. Um, I've worked for some, yeah, especially in um, uh, television and radio. But not uh, the in the theatre, there are um, some very good female directors, but I haven't worked for any. Yeah, um, Deborah Warner, um, for one, she works a lot with Fiona Shaw at the National, and um, Jude Kelly, I think her name is. Um, there are, yeah, there are females. And as far as parts, there are enough parts out there for you, Randy? I mean, when you get finished with <laughs> this fiddler, do you, do you go right away to something else, or you have to start? I have to start over again. Start over again, looking. Yeah, that's, that's always depresses me the constantly having to audition and constantly having to prove yourself over and over and over again. And the nice and thing... Even at this point, when one assumes they've seen you in so many things. Sometimes I get offered to do things, but mostly I have to audition. It's always so wonderful when someone just calls up and says, would you like I to saw do you. this? I, just, yeah. I love that. <laughs> um, <clears throat> Is the competition very severe? I... I don't even th think of it as competition because it's so apples and oranges. They either want this, this person or they want me, you know, it's mm -hmm. that type mm -hmm. thing again. Um, and you can do so much, Randy, though, because you can... Oh, you can thank you. But you know something? Here's the thing about the business. Uh, even though I've done most of my work in musicals and I've done a couple of plays here and there, I still with most of the casting directors in town, get labeled as a musical theater performer. Mm -hmm. hmm. And I think Bernie Telsey, God bless oh. Bernie Telsey, who I think is the best casting director in town, because he just brings in good actors. He doesn't type anyone. He, doesn't, he just brings in interesting, good actors. But they're not all like that. Yeah. Um, it's, I, I still get typed. I still have a hard time being seen for plays. Um, and Randy just tough. was in an amazing it's tough. It's tough. play last season, The Long Christmas Ride Home. Which was and, and that oh. was because I think of... of um, Doug. Doug. Doug Abel, the artistic director. And At the Vineyard Theater. Another one who's just oh. a, 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 a gem. Hmm. Just a gem. It's all about the work at that theater. It's just the most wonderful theater to work for. It's called the Vineyard Theater. It's downtown, mm -hmm. not for profit. And it's just, there's no um, bold, you know, it's, it's just about the work. <laughs> and they've been there. having a wonderful couple, uh, couple of years. It's where Avenue Q started. Right, right. So they, and, and it's also where Three Tall Women came right. from. Oh, so yes. it's a, it's, it's an, uh, you know, it does. And do you have the next plan? Do you know what you're doing after five? I don't know. The only thing that I know that I'm doing is I'm doing um, the play <laughs> Honor in oh. Berkeley, actually, at the Berkeley Rap. Um, in uh, a start rehearsal on the 19th of April 
and um, play till the 3rd of June because it's a, it's a wonderful play and it probably, uh, if it were to come to New York, it wouldn't probably come with me. So, um, what, what do I, you mean? Because, well, I think um, um, uh, Corin Redgrave and, and Eileen Atkins did it in London very successfully last season and there was some idea that Corin might come to come to Berkeley but he's both being Lear and um, uh, being um, Ken Tynan now in London and starting a new political party so he, he's not going to come and I suspect that if it were to come to New York it would come with Eileen Atkins and, and Corin and, and not with me and it was in New York um, in, uh, uh, with Jane Alexander and Bob Foxworth and Laura Linney and wasn't so successful. And it's a wonderful, wonderful part and, and um, um, I, I think, and I'm, fr you know, it's a little bit like going home. And there is some possibility, though I don't know if it's going to happen, uh, during the um, RNC um, there was a, we did a reading of Electra at uh, the Lincoln Center Library with Marissa Tomei and David Strathairn and Heather Tom and, and um, there's some um, possibility that, and Lila Robbins, oh Lila was wonderful, she was the chorus, so there's some possibility that that will have a limited run. It's interesting though, isn't it, how plays mm -hmm. don't go from one city to another city sometimes, certainly not one country to another. The, is it the humor is different or the accent is different? Well, or? sometimes, it, uh, it's interesting, Honor, everyone thinks of Honor as a, as a British play, and it isn't, it's actually an Australian play. And I don't know why, I mean, it doesn't, that doesn't actually seem to be true. There's a strong Anglophilia in, uh, bias, uh, Anglophilic bias in, certainly in the commercial theater in New York, um, which is difficult sometimes for, uh, makes it difficult for serious American writers. If you're a serious American writer, oddly, you're much more likely to get your play on in a commercial venue in London than you are in a commercial venue here, whereas all the m most important uh, British writers are produced, uh, uh, you know, in, in this country on Broadway in commercial venues, so... Brenda, you do a southern accent, speaking <laughs> of going from one <laughs> country to another. How, how were you cast <laughs> as a southern woman? I know. Did you have to audition in a southern, with um, a southern accent? No, um, I didn't audition for this. Marcia Norman um, wanted me to play this part, um, I and I was sent the script a couple of years ago, um, but it seemed like a pipe dream, and, and I couldn't figure why <laughs> she would want me to play this. Um, Anyway, she did, and they persisted and wanted me to come to do a reading here in New York. And when I came um, about six or eight months ago to do, or they wanted to hear it out loud, I went all around America and Southern Australia <laughs> with the accent. Um, but um, they'd heard other things I had done, not with that particular accent, but that I could do them. And, um, and then uh, Edie... Falco became interested in playing the other part and it suddenly all became like it was going to happen and um, I said oh. and I've worked hard on the accent with Deborah Hecht and um, 
it, it hurt my face to start with because <laughs> I, my voice comes from here, um, but hers is right there. And so, and it was, oh, and I was using different yeah. muscles. Oh, really? And so, for a while there, you know, <laughs> oh, <laughs> your nose hurt. My face hurt. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Mm. You'd have to exercise yeah, <laughs> that yeah. part of your That's face. Like I could feel the resonance right here. <laughs> <laughs> now, why are some people good at doing this and others aren't? And I, I, am I wrong that the British seem better at doing accents than Americans? Are we not I so think that's, that? I, I don't, don't think that's true. They are. I don't okay, I'm glad true. to hear it. No. I think On the contrary, I, I mean, and for a long, long yeah. time, it was everybody always said that, that, that uh, we could do British accents and, and the British actors couldn't, couldn't do, do American. American accents. That's not true it's any just longer. You've got a good ear. You can. You, you can. can do it's it. like do singing. It. Yeah. You yeah. sort of. You either and you either have a, a thing for it or you don't. Yeah. And there are some you can do and some you can't. Have you had to do accents? Um, yeah, I've had to do. I, I'm, I do a really bad Cockney. I'm pretty good at doing like a Maggie Smith British accent. <laughs> <laughs> but I haven't had to do it a lot. And yeah. people assume you can do it right off. Yeah. You have to work Study at it. it yeah. you, I mean, it's, it's, an actor might not be able to do it right now, but three weeks down the line, with tuition, they can do it. <laughs> so, um, you know, I couldn't do this accent when I started. Um, and I'm still working on it, to tell you the truth. Um, <coughs> you know, it's like anything else. You have to practice. <laughs> Did you bring your accent home when you were preparing? Um, well, I had to do a voiceover this week for a British commercial <laughs> and, uh, on Satellite Link Up. And they said, you sound American. And I thought I was sounding perfectly English. And I had to do 27 takes before I could get rid of the American nuance. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I could hear them thinking, oh, let's cut our losses and get somebody else. He's <laughs> infected. <laughs> well, if you had to do anything else, is there anything else in life you would rather do than act? Well, this is like the James Lipton yes. show. <laughs> oh, too sorry. Um, what do you like best, then, about what you are doing? What do I like best about it? You know, it's... it's uh, what do I like best about it? This is going to sound so corny, but um, I really love living in an imaginary world under imaginary circumstances. I like, Not corny. I like, mm. um, I like just getting immersed in the world that I'm in at the time. Right now, I'm in Anatevka, and and um, just that's the part that I like the most. You, I think. Um, I I like. really enjoy the challenge of of observing somebody. Um, whether it's a real person or someone created, just to work out what makes them tick, what makes them get up in the morning, mm. and just kind of really understanding somebody. Um, and it's great being an actor, you know, because that's what we do. We observe people and try to understand them and make what's written on the page visible and believable. And th it's a different challenge each time. Because you can play one person, you've played one person well, doesn't mean you can play the next person well. It's a whole different challenge, and, it's, and that's what I like about it.
Thank you so much. That was so terrific. I enjoyed so much talking to you and learning so much. Thank you. Thank you. We are coming to you from the City University of New York at their Graduate Center. Thank you so much.